The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us on the phone as we continue with Mental Health Week, opinion writer at the New York Times and author of the new book, Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood. Jessica Gross is here with us to talk about mental health and parents. Thank you for being here. Morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So, so how how are parents feeling? Uh, how how are they doing right now? How are moms doing right now? Two years into a global pandemic that nobody on earth has ever lived through. Uh, you know, not great. I not always great. think of that m- m- Mad Men meme. Not great, Bob. They're just. <laughs> Although, look, you know, things are certainly in a much better place than they were in 2020 for most people. Um, But right now there's headlines every day about the triple demic of viruses. Mm -hmm. Um, It is very hard to keep the kids in school or care. If you're working, continue to work. If you're not working, deal with a revolving door of sick children and family members um, when, you know, there just isn't a safety net um, in the way that many other countries have. Um, So yeah, you know, better than 2020, not great. I mean, what are some of the things that people deal with every day? I mean, I think we have some idea because there's been some really great reporting um, throughout the course of the pandemic of, you know, I I was talking earlier about that now infamous photo of like the man at his nice little Zoom setup and the mom like surrounded by chaos with the kids and both of them were on Zoom calls at the time. So I think we have some idea that, you know, part of the problem is our gender roles um, in the pandemic that have exposed the inequities in and household tasks and taking care of everything. But what are some of the specific things that that in, in your book and, and talking to so many moms out there they are reporting that is like top of mind for them in terms of their struggles. Like what are they, what specific things are they struggling with? Um, So I think it's sort of twofold. There's the internal and the external. Internally, it's a lot of expectations about how they should behave and how they should only express perfect love all the time for their children and feeling ambivalent or having, you know, sadder or darker feelings that's compounded by the guilt that they feel about having those feelings in the first place. (laughs) So that's sort of the internal struggle. Uh, Also sort of just straight up exhaustion because there are only so many hours of the day and there are so many tasks that need to get done. Um, So that's what's going on internally. Externally, um, we live in a country where there is no paid leave. There are no not guaranteed paid sick days. Um, we the school day doesn't match the work day. 
Um, this is a math problem with no solution. There are a hundred thousand missing child care workers, um, and they're not. There, many of them are parents. They're not making a living wage. So, you know, there are all these external forces, and why I the book is about American motherhood specifically um, because it's a very unique context, and I wanted to talk about those sort of external things that really compound the anxiety because if you're working you're trying to raise your kids and have a, a family and that nagging economic worry is in the back of your mind the whole time that just makes everything so much harder i mean you mentioned the fact that you know there's a shortage of childcare workers and that the school day doesn't match the work day these are the main things i was saying right at, right at the beginning of the pandemic when everybody was like you know, mostly men were writing op-eds in the Wall Street Journal saying, we got to open everything up. Everything needs to be open. We need to be opening up our businesses for the economy. And I remember Jared Kushner standing at the podium and saying, we're going to be rocking by July. He said that in July, in uh, April, I believe, of 2020. Okay. So, you know, we were not rocking by any July of 2020. And it felt to me like there was a male-focused analysis that didn't, feel it important perhaps to point out that there was not affordable childcare in this country. And so if you're going to shut down jobs and shut down schools, the kids are going to be at home with their parents <laughs> and their parents can't go to work if the kids don't have anywhere to go. And then additionally, like you said, we don't have paid leave or any type of leave, uh, f universal family leave that allows people to, um, come back to a job knowing it will still be there for them if they have to take off to take care of a sick parent in a pandemic or a sick child in a pandemic. I mean, now when you're talking about the triple-demic, that's real. Like, if you just go on TikTok for five minutes, everybody, everybody's kid had RSV this this fall and winter, basically, that, according to my, my all of my social media feeds. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, my, my first grader and I both had the flu four weeks ago, despite... Uh, our vaccinations. And so it was milder than I think it would have otherwise been. But yeah, it was a whole week of chaos, obviously. <laughs> um, I think, you know, those statements just reveal how much the economic world turns on the unpaid and poorly paid labor of mostly women. And that's full stop. And that's how it always has been. Um, and the pandemic, I think, just revealed that to a larger group of people. But now, I mean, one thing that sort of does give me hope about change for the future is I do think more people of po different political stripes and different caretaking structures, so people who care for elderly family members or sick friends, are saying like, hey, this is not working for most people because we're humans and we would like to sustain our human relationships and care for the sick people in our lives. Like this is a very basic human need. It almost feels silly. I'm laughing because it feels silly to say that out loud. Right. Like it's so basic, right? Um, so yes, I, I am, you know, the pandemic I think was really a galvanizing event in more Americans understanding the value and deep need for space for caregiving. Oh, caregiving is, we're all going to have to do it in some form or fashion. Um, yeah. Even if you do, do not have children, um, I'm sure that you have loved ones, whether it be a parent or guardian, a relative, a sibling, um, a friend. 
community member. Um, and so we're all going to have to do that at some point. And so you're going to want the best care. And so we need to create an infrastructure that allows for that at every phase of life, frankly. Um, one of the questions I had for you specifically is about gender dynamics and how outdated gender dynamics and expectations of each um, gender, if you are talking about the outdated binary, um, put women in this position where they have to do everything plus more without sleep or support. Why are we still abiding by gender expectations from when women didn't, when women were property and didn't have any rights? And also, you know, when we were farming and stuff, hunting, like we're not doing that anymore. Right. I mean, I think <laughs> these things are, are, these are things that are extremely deeply ingrained, right? I mean, this is thousands of years of cultural, you know, training of expectations. Like this is not going to disappear overnight. And I think it's also just worth remembering we have come quite far in the past 50 years, um, certainly Still a long way to go, but I think a lot about the fact that you know, when my mother was a young woman, she didn't have access to her own credit. I mean, women mm -hmm. couldn't have their own credit. That's in our lifetimes. So, yep. and I interviewed a, an, a, a historian for the book um, named Alice Kessler Harris, who was told, you know, I was sort of griping about how far we hadn't come and how frustrating that was. And she was like, when I, in my first job, which was a teacher, I had to sign a contract that said, if I became pregnant, I would quit. So listen, you know, I, not to say that everything is ideal now, certainly not, but we, I want to acknowledge just that, you know, we have come pretty far mm -hmm. in the past, in the, in the recent history. So that said, um, I think it is just so hard partially because of structural reasons. So in a country where if you are in a heterosexual relationship and there isn't paid leave and you are a biological mother, you still have to stay home to recover from childbirth, right? And bond with your child. And if you have a spouse who is going back to work because they also don't have leave, um, those patterns get set in place very young. And they are very difficult to break because the, ch the child will sort of be conditioned to, to think of their mother as the primary caregiver. Um, and even when families work very hard to sort of break those patterns, they report having to train the outside world. Mm. Um, and so uh, there's a woman I interviewed in my book and she and her husband were so committed to, you know, a really clean division of labor to just be, have a, a really egalitarian organization in their home. And they succeeded where they had to keep doing work was training the outside world to actually call the dad. So they talked about it was either a dentist or a pediatrician. The dad covered the those visits that he made the appointments, he brought the kid. And getting the receptionist to call just the dad took so much work. <laughs> Because they just kept calling the mom and she was like, call the dad, you have his number, we've asked you before. And it was, you know, that sort of training. And I've reported on this numerous times where even if you are in inside your own home, really committed to sort of a, an egalitarian 
um, functioning, it's hard, you know, the whole world operates on the mother being the primary parent when there's a, you know, in a heterosexual couple. Um, and, you know, there, there is some research uh, around queer couples and that they are able, you know, not to say that, you know, their relationships are a panacea. Every, every relationship has its issues, but in terms of equitable division of labor, it's easier because they don't have that sort of gen those gendered expectations um, that go along with a heterosexual couple. I hate gender expectations when it comes to chores. There is nothing <laughs> special about me being able to do a dish versus you, another grown adult, doing the same dish. There is nothing. Especially if you use a dish, you better wash it. I don't know what's wrong <laughs> with your hands. Like, I literally, I mean, I think that I, I'm reflecting a lot in recent weeks about the lessons my mother taught me. And, like, although she didn't grow up, a like, saying I'm a feminist, like, she mm -hmm. definitely instill, instilled a lot of feminist ideas even though she grew up you know very conservative and I think about her being like you know who did you leave that for pointing at the dish in the sink and it's it's true it's like we shouldn't be leaving things for anyone else unless we've communicated with that person about doing that don't assume just because your wife is the woman in a cisgendered relate in a heterosexual relationship um that they're gonna do the dishes or the laundry because that's what's expected of them that stop that Anybody listening out here, if you have that idea in your brain, get it out. Get it out. We're going to get that out today. Um, <laughs> one of the other things um, I wanted to ask you about is this idea that, you know, and I feel like moms get this message a lot. Um, women, and particularly cisgendered women, get this message nonstop, which is like, we need to do more self-care. Um, and I feel like telling a mom to do more self-care is just that's going to be an enraging thing that will infuriate that person, particularly if they're um, in need of support and help. They don't want us to tell us them to take a bubble bath. They need us to show up with a grocery or like come over and do the dishes for them or help with a load of laundry. Like they need us to send a handy handy maid. You know what I mean? Like help them in another way other than, you know, <laughs> some of the ways that we tend to. Can you talk a bit about the sort of horrible theme that we always go back to like we need more self-care and sheet masks and bubble baths like that's going to impact and help with these systems that we're talking about right i mean i think it goes back to sort of one of the major themes of the book which is that we've made all of these issues just individual problems mm. like the problem is you're not working enough on yourself that you're not making enough time for yourself you're not doing x y and z you didn't plan well enough like it's none of these things are problems that you can solve as an individual. I mean, that's just what it is. And in terms of sort of our health, um, you know, there are so many barriers to mothers being in good health in the United States, and none of them have to do with the number of bubble baths they're taking. <laughs> I mean, I think all the time about, fr I, I don't know if you have friends who have, you know, transferred between the American context and, you know, European or mm -hmm. even, you know, other countries and given birth in the United States and then had the experience of giving birth in a country that actually takes better care of their mothers and has a lower, frankly, lower infant and maternal death because they take better care of mothers. And, you know, they have, you know, 
uh, nurses that will visit your house in the, in the first three months after giving birth who will help you with nursing, make sure that emotionally you're okay. They will have, you know, community sponsored mothers groups where you can get support and community centers that you can go to to get a little help and extra childcare. And when I have international readers comment on my articles, they're just like agog. They mm -hmm. can't believe that it's even like this. <laughs> They're just like, how are you living? Right. Um, and I am so, I have very close Canadian friends and I am so jealous of them all the time. <laughs> a full year. They get a full year of parental leave. How it's glorious. Um, so what? I. Wait, yeah. what? We need to move. Why don't we live here? Why do we live? I, oh, sorry. Honestly, listen, I love the United States. I'm not going anywhere, but we make it so much harder than it needs to be. That's like, if, if, if we have one sentence that defines my book, it's we are making it so much harder than it needs to be. Um, and it's hurting so many people in ways that don't, it's just unnecessary. And I think one idea around reproductive justice, it's not my idea, certainly it's an idea that's been talked about in reproductive justice circles. It's not just about uh, the ability to choose, um, you know, uh, to choose abortion. It's also about the ability to have to be healthy and have healthy children and to feel that you are having children in a world that takes care of them and is safe. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's an area of reproductive justice we need to be talking way more about because it makes me tremendously sad that there um, are people who want to be parents and want to have more kids than they already have and aren't having them because of the financial difficulties and the healthcare difficulties that we have in the United States. And so I think talking more about that as an aspect of reproductive justice is so important. It actually leads me right to my next question, which was about Dobbs, because I feel like, you know, this is the kind of conversation that maybe before the Dobbs decision, if you were one of those people that's like, I'm not having kids, like, I don't want to have kids, I'm not planning on it. Um, you might find yourself in a position where you don't have that option as and as easily accessible um, to to terminate a pregnancy that you do not want um, because of what happened in the Dobbs case. I mean, do you think this conversation is even more important in this moment because of that reproductive justice frame that you just outlined and the fact that we don't have legal abortion anymore in this country and we may have limited access to even contraception um, that many, many people rely upon. And so they're going to find themselves in, in a position to be parents, even if they didn't want to. Um, and all of these structures are still in place. Yeah, I think it's a super important conversation to have now. And just, I think there needs to be a lot more conversation about bodies and what this does to our bodies and how we need help taking care of our bodies. And that that's an important part of living a good life and having sort of true freedom is feeling not having, you know, pregnancy is extremely hard on the body, um, anybody's body, the most healthy body. Um, and I've really enjoyed, Erin Carmen had a great piece about this in New York Magazine. I've written about it. I think just having that be a, a public conversation that we continue to have is extremely important because for so long, I mean, again, talking about the very recent past, you wouldn't even talk about being pregnant. That was taboo to, to talk about pregnancy, show yourself being pregnant. I mean, there, I, I just saw someone talking about how um, uh, I love Lucy. It was a huge deal when she revealed her pregnancy on TV because you didn't do that. You did not talk about 
that people became pregnant from sex. And that was like (laughs) 40 or 50 years ago. So just seeing the increased conversation about the real impact on the body of pregnancy and birth is, I think, great. And I would love to see continued more conversation about that in the new year. I can't believe that was so recent. I mean, when you think when I I do think about this in the context of like civil rights and the civil rights movement, because I have an aunt that marched in Selma who is still alive. Like I can call her on the phone and be like, hi, hi, Aunt Janet. You know what I'm saying? And so whenever I can do that, I'm like, whoa, hey, in her lifetime, people like me didn't even have the right to vote, vote. okay, vote, not even like be the president, but like actually vote for a president or like a mayor. You know what I mean? And so I think that we always have to keep in mind that a lot of this stuff has recent history. And as you said, much of what we're talking about has been, you know, ingrained in our culture for hundreds, thousands of years. And we but we don't have it doesn't have to be this way, I think, is sort of the, the point is that we can actually make it different. Um, once we're recognizing some of these problems that need need a change in, as I would put it. So I, I in the last two minutes here, I just want to sort of leave our parents out there that are listening on the phone, including um, one of our fabulous producers um, who is a mom in the pandemic. And um, we all, we often talk a bit about like, you know, if, if you pick circumstances to become a mom, the pandemic probably isn't like one you would pick voluntarily no, like, um, no, because no. this is this is a very difficult context to do this but just can you leave the parents out there with just a message of support and and just a, maybe a little pep talk um, absolutely. like it's not just you it's not just you Oh, it is absolutely not just you. Um, I talked to over 100 moms for the book. I have been talking to, I can't even count the number of parents over the past three years. And so it is very normal to be having a hard time and talking about it helps. Um, I also, a message for parents of very young children. So I'm going to say under five, it gets better and way easier. My kids are six and 10 and they do so many things themselves. They are delightful. I enjoy them so much, <laughs> which isn't to say I didn't enjoy. I enjoyed them very much as babies, but it's just, you're so tired. I'm way less tired now. <laughs> I feel so, that. That's yes. real. It's real. So that's also part of it. It feels endless when you're in it. And so I've never been so tired in my life as I was when my kids were one and four. That was just a real roughie for me. Um, so that's another thing to remember. It gets easier. And the last thing I will say is you are never alone. I think sometimes depending on your cultural context, the people around you, you can feel like look around you and think everyone's having an easier time than me. What's wrong with me? Am I doing something wrong? Or was I, 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 occasionally, I think in my early motherhood days, would worry like, is there something fundamentally wrong with me? Am I unmaternal that this doesn't feel easier? And Mm. the fact is, most people feel this way. Certainly not everyone. There's so many different versions of parenting and motherhood and different feelings that different people have. And I want to sort of honor all of them. But just that honesty and being able to be honest with the people around you about where you are and seeking solace from them. It just goes so far. I mean, finding your people um, just is incredible. And knowing that, I mean, even if you don't have those people in your life, I will tell you, I have talked to them. I've talked to so many of them that are struggling. And so know that you're not alone and having these feelings um, and having a hard time, you know, it's, it's, important and difficult work to raise children yes it is you're you're raising humans 
little yep. tiny humans that come here and you have to make sure that they survive <laughs> and become functioning and healthy adults. And that is a big responsibility. Um, and so you are not alone out there if you are struggling with that at all. Jessica Gross, author of Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood, also New York Times opinion writer. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for this book. I'm sure parents will be grateful. They should pick up this book so that they can feel seen. But I also see you. I see you, parents out there. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlinette Check-In for new episodes every weekday.